As I just said, I'd encourage you, if you don't have a Bible, to use the Black Bibles and turn to Psalm 2. And the Black Bibles, you can find that on page 448. And as we turn to Psalm 2, there is a question as to whether we should be calling it Psalm 1. For in fact, it is common throughout rabbinic, which is rabbis, so Jewish rabbis, the experts of the Bible in the Old Testament, they called both Psalm 1 and Psalm 2, Psalm 1. Ancient references to Psalm 2 in the Greek New Testament do not call it Psalm 2, they call it Psalm 1. In other words, as I tried to say last week, Psalm 1 and 2 has often, by hosts of Bible scholars, as put together as two parts of an introduction to the whole book of Psalms. And this is because there's quite a number of similarities. Before I read it, I want to actually read both Psalm 1 and 2 as if they're one today. But I want to point out a few of these similarities. Look at verse 1, the first word of Psalm 1. Blessed. It's the Hebrew word asher that we talked about. The Greek word makarios. Look at the very last sentence of Psalm 2, verse 12. Do you see the word blessed there again? It's that same word, Asher, or Makarios. Notice that all the Psalms, for the most part, in the first 70-some Psalms, have a subtitle, a superscription. And it should be like in all capital letters right underneath of the title that's given by your editor. So in your English Bibles, you'll have an editor of the English Bible, and so you see the way of the righteous and the wicked. And then it goes right into the verse. But when you get to Psalm 3, you see that it says, Save me, O my God. That is an editorial note, Save me, O my God. It's a title given by an English Bible editor. But the capitals, a Psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, that is actually in the Hebrew text. And these help set the context of it. So look at Psalm 1 and 2. Do you notice that there's no subtitle? Which is odd. And so that's another reason to think that Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 go together. Another reason is look at verse 6 of Psalm 1. Look at the way the psalm ends. It says, For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Look at the way Psalm 2 ends in verse 12. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and, notice these are the exact same words in the Hebrew, you perish in the way. The way of the wicked will perish. If you do not kiss the son, you will perish in the way. And furthermore, there's one other thing we mentioned last week. One of the central ideas to Psalm 1 is look at verse 2. The blessed, happy man is the one who delights in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates. It's the Hebrew word haggah. So he haggah, day and night, God's Torah, his law. And then look at chapter 2, verse 1. Why do the nations rage? Why do the peoples haggah in vain? So there's another parallel connection, but in this time it's, it's showing that there's not, not just a, there's a similarity in word, but a, A very different idea of meditation, a different idea of Haggah. One is Haggah over the scriptures, the Torah. The other one is meditating, plotting, scheming, murmuring against God's laws and ways, which shows that there's actually a lot of differences between these. There's a bit of contrast. There's like a 
a similarity and contrast. So, for example, the blessed life in Psalm 1 is the Torah. It is all revolved around God's ways and his word. In Psalm 2, the blessed life, as you look at verse 12, is about taking refuge in the Son. It is all about the anointed one, the Son, the Messiah. So that's the difference. The blessed life is seen a little differently in Psalm 2. Notice that in Psalm 1, it's blessed is the man in the singular, and then you follow through, and it's very much individual-focused. When you get to Psalm 2, notice how corporate and plural it is, the nations, the peoples, and then there's language of us and you that's in plural. And one sort of kind of personal anecdote, it seems as if Psalm 1 is just a classic favorite amongst Christians today. It's one of the ones that even as I preached last week, I had several of you come up and be like, oh, I love Psalm 1. My guess is none of you know anything about Psalm 2. And for that matter, I think it's as if Psalm 1 is one of our favorites. It kind of helps us with our individualism, and Psalm 2 is corporate. It's political. It's national. Oh, yeah, whatever. And I would argue that, in fact, because it's been ignored, you probably need Psalm 2 even a little bit more, and then especially because it's ultimately about Jesus. So let's read them together, starting in verse 1 of Psalm 1, as if it was one Not necessarily one psalm, but two psalms put together as an introduction is is really what I think has happened. So two separate poems put together at the beginning. Let's read them. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. And they say, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. But he who sits in the heavens laughs. And the Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree, the Lord said to me. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. 
This is the word of the Lord, and we're studying a short series of some selected psalms, trying to answer the question, as you see in your bulletin, what is a blessed life? And last week, I tried to help you understand that the word blessed is not something God does to us, as that's not what the word's talking about. It's talking about a state of being. So this is not hashtag, I've been blessed, as sometimes it's done in our popular culture. This is talking about, I am living in a state of happiness, of flourishing. I have abundant joy, life to the full. That's what this psalm, one and two, is talking about. And that's why I think they're bookends. You know, blessed is the man who delights in the law of the Lord and meditates on it day and night. And blessed is the man who finds his refuge in the Lord's anointed in his son. And we're doing this short series as an interruption into a longer series in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew is the first book of what's called the New Testament. By the way, the word testament is the Latin word for covenant. So the Bible is broken into Old Covenant and New Covenant. And repeatedly throughout our time here at this church, I've tried to teach you that the covenants are the way to see the storyline of Scripture. The Bible is a storybook. It's a library of many different books, but it's ultimately telling you a story, and in fact, the Psalms are a collection of poems that are telling you that story in poem form. And there's all kinds of cool ways to see that, but let me show you one of them that helps even further elaborate these points I've been talking about in terms of Psalm 1 and 2. Turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 72. Psalm 72 is the end of book 2. And you should see that at the top of Psalm 1. I mentioned this last week. Psalms have five books of poems, and they, I think, are referencing in terms of the number of books. There's five of them because there's five books of the Torah, five books of the law of Moses. Look at the way book 2 ends at verse 20 of Psalm 72, page 485. And notice that it says, the prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. Now, the reason why that should stick out is because you see the subtitle that we mentioned in Psalm 72. Look at the subtitle, and it says, this is a psalm of Solomon. And so you're starting to wonder, is this a prayer of Solomon, or is this a prayer of David? What's going on? Why does it say that the prayers of David are ended when it looks like, well, that's the prayer of Solomon? And the reason is when it says of, it does not necessarily mean that person wrote it. It could be like dedicated to Solomon or according to Solomon. So this could be a prayer of David to his son, Solomon, who's going to take over as king over the nations and rule, which is when you read over it, you're going to notice that this is exactly what he's praying for all over. Look at verse 8. May he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. And on and on he goes. All through this, you're going to see, look at verse 10 and 11. May the kings of Tarshish of the coastlands, render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him, all nations serve him. It sounds a lot like Psalm 2, by the way, if you're listening closely. You'll notice that Psalm 2 is promising that the Lord's anointed will rule over all the nations. And so at the end of book 2, the end of the Psalms of David section, you have the prayers of David ended. And my thought then is that Psalm 2 is probably the introduction to what was at one point a collection of Davidic Psalms. 
But then later, when more poems were added, and you had the five books, they added another introduction, Psalm 1, to all five books. And so that's why Psalm 1 and 2 are both introductions, two probably being the introduction to this collection of David's psalms that ends at the end of book 2. I don't know if that was just like, whoa, I have no idea what you're talking about, but that's what I think's going on and why I'm saying that Psalm 1 and 2 are both introductory psalms that have been intentionally placed to help you get to understand the whole story of the Bible in poem form and to also understand the flow of the psalms. There's, there's a lot that could be said on that, but for now, this is what we're studying. A few of these psalms that talk about what it looks like for us to be blessed, to have this state of blessing And the reason we're doing this is because Jesus is going to pull off of these psalms this idea in his next most famous teaching that we're going to be in for quite a while. So before just diving into that, I want us to pause and kind of get the background behind the language of the Beatitudes. That's the Latin word for blessed, happiness. And Jesus is going to tell us what a happy life is like in the New Covenant. So in the Old Covenant, we get to see what the happy life looks like by reading some of these psalms, and and so we're studying those now. And so one way to describe it is right now we're doing a short series on ancient song lyrics. Does that sound strange to you? We're studying 3,000-year-old song lyrics because many of these poems were sung by choirs in church worship in the Old Covenant days. My guess is that most of your friends are not going to be like, oh, wow, you're studying ancient song lyrics at church. Let me come next week with you. But I am assuming that many of them are listening to song lyrics that are preaching message about happiness. For in fact, when you listen to the modern song lyrics, they're talking about the same thing. What's a happy life? What's a blessed life? They don't use Makarios or Asher, but even in the English Do you know, for instance, what was the most successful song in 2014, selling almost 14 million copies worldwide? Billboard's number one song won a Grammy, nominated for an Academy Award. Do you know the name of that song? Happy. And the song goes like this. It might seem crazy what I'm about to say. Hold on to that thought for a second. Sunshine, she's here. You can take a break because I'm a hot air balloon that could go to space. Bring me down, oh, can't nothing bring me down. My level is too high to bring me down. Can't nothing bring me down. Let me tell you now. Here comes the bad news. Talking this and that, well, give me all you got and don't hold it back. Well, I should probably warn you. I'll be just fine. No offense to you. Don't waste your time. And here's why. Because I'm happy. Clap along. If you feel like a room without a roof. Because I'm happy. Clap along if you feel like happiness is the truth. Because I'm happy. Clap along if you know what happiness is to you. Because I'm happy. Clap along if you feel like that's what you want to do. Now, in some respects, even if this sounds silly, this song is really similar to what we're looking at here in these ancient songs. Very similar lyrics, very similar ideas. A happy life is one that can withstand the various trials and seasons. Is that not what we saw in last week's psalm, Psalm 1? 
The blessed man is like a tree planted by streams of water, and whatever he does, it prospers no matter what season comes, winter, summer, very, very hot desert summers. Remember, we're talking about a Middle Eastern culture in a semi-arid land where it could get really hot. I just went there in October. It got hot. It was 90, and they were like, oh, this is so cool. So imagine having a tree that is planted by streams, multiple streams, and that no matter which seasons come, whether it's very cold, very hot, winds come, it does not fall down. Whatever it does, it prospers. Its leaf does not wither. Isn't that what Happy is writing about? Here comes the bad news. You say, and this and that, oh, give it all you've got. Because I'm not coming down. I'm not coming down. I'm happy. What's ironic is that the first line of Pharrell's song might be his best. It might seem crazy what I'm about to say. Because there, my friends, is the only place that Pharrell's song, I think, corresponds with Scripture. He is talking about what a happy life would look like. That it can withstand any kind of trials, temptations, struggles, pains, sufferings. Give me the bad news, give me all you got, but I'm staying up. I'm happy. Then he says these words, here's why, and it's the oft-repeated chorus that I'm assuming many of you have heard probably too many times. He's happy, why? Because he feels like he's in a room without a roof. Because he feels like happiness is the truth. Happiness is the truth. Why is he happy even when things get bad? Because all you need to know is happiness is whatever that is to you if you feel like that's what you want to do. Does that not capture the modern mind of today? This is what a blessed life is. It is somebody who just does whatever they feel like, whenever they want, and there's no limits to it. There's no roof. I just keep soaring to happy heights. When we look at Psalm 2 today, you're going to see that is actually the exact opposite of biblical, ancient, God-breathed happiness. Happiness is not doing whatever you want and whatever just makes you feel happy however you want to define happiness. Instead, happiness comes from living your life according to God's Torah, his instruction. And it is delighting in his instruction. It is not just knowing that God's ways are good, like, oh, that's a good way to live, that's good for you, but rather delighting as if it was the only and the best way to live. This is when someone moves from a normal life to a blessed life or a struggling life to a happy life. It's as if these psalms are telling us, clap along if you know that happiness comes when God's anointed son is your refuge. The psalms, as they're being sung, says, clap along and celebrate if instead of feeling like a room without a roof, You feel the warmth and protection of Jesus being your shelter from the storms of this life as your refuge. Clap along if you know that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. That God's anointed Son is the center of truth, not happiness. Clap along if happiness is the truth, just happiness? Defined by whom? Whoever wants to define it any way they please. Clap along 
if happiness is not dependent on your feelings, but is rather a solid rock that never changes and is the same yesterday, today, and will be the same tomorrow and forever. Clap along and sing and celebrate with the psalmist. That's the point of this sermon, by the way. I have one simple point for us to meditate on. A happy life is when you find Jesus as your refuge. When you find that the Son, the anointed Son of God, is your shelter, your roof, because there will be storms, there will be trials, and you need God to cover over you, you don't want to have an endless rooftop of happiness undefined. You would like it to be defined by Christ, our cornerstone, by Christ, our shelter. So make Jesus your refuge. That's your takeaway. I'll give you a few others throughout, but that's the main takeaway. Make Jesus your refuge, your shelter, your protection. Shelter from what? Shelter from God, first and foremost. You read Psalm 2. Shelter from the anger and wrath of God. Make him your refuge because you do not want to be against him. I'll say this at the end of the sermon, but... For here, just to get the heart of this point, there will be no refuge from Jesus. There will only be refuge found in Jesus. You'll be either one or the other. And that's what this psalm is trying to teach us. So make Jesus your refuge. And then the opposite of Pharrell's language, when he says, nothing can bring me down, I'm going to encourage you to make Jesus your refuge because nothing can bring Jesus down. That is the central point of this text. Nothing can bring down the Lord's anointed. Let's just walk through it and see this point. Make Jesus your refuge because nothing, and I mean nothing, can bring him down. Verses 1 through 3. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord, and then notice this very important phrase, and against his anointed. It's the word Mashiach. It's the word that we get Messiah from. And so when you read in the New Testament, this would be a very simple way if you just get what's going on here. The rulers take counsel together against the Lord. That's the word Yahweh. That's the covenant God. And against the Christ. Does that click some dots? Against the Christ. That's the word anointed in the Greek that we have. When you hear Jesus Christ, that means Jesus, the anointed, this person. Jesus, the Messiah. And what's happening to the Messiah? Well, the nations are raging against him. The peoples are plotting in vain. The kings of the earth are setting themselves against him. The rulers take counsel together, and they're plotting, and they're scheming, and they're making plans to try and bring him down. And can, can they do it? Well, look at verse 1. No, they can't. It's in vain. That word means it's empty. They make plans, but they never work out. Even when they think they work out, they don't. Notice the reason why they're trying to scheme against the Christ. It says in verse 3 that they're saying this. This is what they want. Their plots and schemes are ultimately to get freedom. Freedom. They believe that by plotting against Yahweh and his anointed Christ, they will be free. And by freedom, they will then have happiness. My friends, this is exactly 
what the world thinks. This is exactly why the song became so popular, not just because it's a catchy tune, because this is exactly what the world is doing and saying and thinking every day. I want freedom to define happiness however I want. I want freedom with no limits and no roof. There's just an endless amount of opportunity for me to experience the bliss of having happiness however I define it. Let me break free from those cursed bonds and those cords, those chains that are dragging me down. How many of your friends who do not follow God, how many of you maybe even have thought, even still struggle, that God's ways are in fact burdensome to you? God's ways are not a delight. They are like chains and they're dragging me down. They're robbing me of my joy and happiness. Why does it seem like all the other people are having all fun on the weekend and we're cooped up studying old ancient song lyrics on Sunday morning? Are they really showing off a happy life? Does it really work that way, that freedom to do whatever you want is happiness? You know what freedom is? It's a piano. I have the freedom to take the piano, lift it up, and use it as a battering ram to hammer things, to sweep my house. I have the freedom to use it in any way that I please. That's what the world's saying, plotting in vain in their stupidity. That's not freedom. The piano was made to play music. Only joyful experience will happen with that piano when you learn how to play the keys. Not when you just say, well, we can do whatever we want with it. Let's just use it however we please. No, use it for its purpose. God's laws are not a chain that's dragging you down. God's laws, his Torah, his instruction... They are giving you freedom to live the way you were meant to be played. This is the fundamental problem that we have. Sin is, by definition, us thinking that there's a pasture land out there, but we, like a dog, have a noose around our neck and a chain tied to the ground, and we can't freely run. That's what we think God's laws are. That's what the nations think God's laws are. But the converted man or woman, the blessed man, realizes God's laws are a delight. They are the pasture land, and it is sin that is driving us down to the ground and robbing us and stealing us of our freedom. How many times have you seen in your own life or in the lives of anyone in the world, sinful choices lead to slavery? I'm free to drink however I want until I get addicted, and now I'm a slave to the bottle. I'm free to take that click and look and lust however I please on the internet. I'm free. Really? Is it really freedom? Or does not all sin eventually lead to slavery? It is God and his word that is trying to set you free. So make Jesus your refuge and realize how futile it is to try and plot against him in your life. Whether you are a nation or an individual, whether you are a church or a married couple, align yourself with God's ways. Meditate on them day and night and see how they relieve to blessing, to an open pasture land of living in the pleasures of God's world that he made. Don't you want the one who has told you how to live Be the one that made you. This is, in fact, what we have in God's word.
So they rebel, and they try and break free from God's ways, and leads to no freedom. What does God do in response? Look at verses 4 to 6. He sits in the heavens, and he laughs. This is a scornful laugh. This is parallelism in Hebrew poetry, so when you look at verse 4, it says he sits in the heaven and laughs. You're going to get another statement. It's going to further elaborate the very same point. The Lord holds them in derision. It's a, a laugh of derision. It's a laugh of scorn, of mocking. It's not a laugh of like, that's humorous and funny, and I'm just like kicking back and laughing up in heaven. Ha, ha, ha. Like, don't think a very light laughter. Think of the laughter that you see actually in Psalm 1, where people are sitting in the seat of scoffers. They're scoffing at God and his people. And what's funny is that in Psalm 2, the irony is that God is the one scoffing at the plots and plans of any nation or individual who wants to go against him. The Lord laughs. His plans will succeed. He will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I will set my king on Zion. Zion, by the way, is just a euphemism. It's a word to just explain that's Jerusalem. This is where the temple and the kingdom and the palace of the Davidic kingdom was held, on my holy hill of Jerusalem. So when you read that, just insert in Jerusalem. It's poetry, though, so you know you can say things in different ways, and it's acceptable, right? So he is saying, I am going to set my king there, and you can make plots against him, you can try and destroy him, and you will never win. Ha! Laughs at them. My friends, I want you to make sure that you realize that this has not just been said poetically to encourage you, it has been said prophetically to strengthen you to know that God's word is true and has in fact played out in this very way. Think, for example, the plots of Caesar Augustus at the birth of Jesus. You guys remember this? Luke chapter 2, very well-known, famous passage. In the year of King Caesar Augustus, he, he has a decree, and he's going to take a census you remember, this is what causes Mary to leave her home to go with Joseph because Joseph is, his, Joseph is the, the pledged husband, and so they need to go to where? Bethlehem, right? Augustus is in the height of his power and glory in Rome, and he signs a decree that fulfills the prophetic word that Jesus would be born in the, 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 the place of Bethlehem where David's son was supposed to be born and prophetically said, and by signing that, just, just picture this. Picture God mocking and laughing when Caesar thinks he is establishing strength and power and, you know, doing the census to get more taxes and money. And in fact, when he signed that census, he was signing his own nation's death warrant. Because by Jesus being born in the city of David, in the town of Bethlehem, as Jesus is born in the shadows of all of this darkness, there would come one named Jesus that would be the true king and rule over Rome. Hey, where's Rome, by the way, right now in terms of political landscape? Are they doing well? Anybody giving allegiance to Caesar or the Roman Empire anymore? No, eventually it has led to its downfall, 
But there's still another king that's on his throne. His name is Jesus, the one born by the decree of Caesar Augustus. That's, that's an example of you look through the Bible and you realize that God's prophetic word is coming true. People plot and make plans. Oh, but God's plans are still going to happen. And he's, in fact, going to use those plots and plans to be part of the purpose. This is what you had read to you earlier in the service. When Samuel got up here and he said, Acts chapter 4 is a story about leaders plotting, planning, scheming to try and stop Christians from preaching God's word. What happened? Do you remember? Turn back with me to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4, a great miracle and healing happened. A man who had been not able to walk for decades was able to now miraculously walk, and all these people see it. And Peter and John start having a heyday of making people disciples of Jesus because they're in awe of the power that's been displayed. And then they hear the good news of Jesus. And then these men get arrested. And then verse 23 says, When they were released, they went to their friends and reported that the chief priests and the elders had what, what all they'd said to them. And, and if you read back earlier in the chapter, you'll see what they said was, you're free to go because we're kind of stuck. Can't, can't keep you in prison anymore. But don't ever preach in the name of Jesus again. That's what they said. So what did they do? When they, all the people heard this in verse 24, when they came back to all their friends and their family members and said, hey, we're free from prison. Look what happened. They all lifted up their voices together and they started praying and they prayed Psalm 2, our psalm. Did you catch that earlier? Sovereign Lord who made the heaven and the earth, the sea and everything in them. And through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. Do you see what they're doing? They're, they're praying Psalm 2. They're praying over scripture, which is something I think you should consider as a habit, as a practice, as a discipline in your own life, by the way, as a little side tangent. This, this is normal amongst followers of God for centuries, for millennia, actually. Pray over the Bible. Have scripture be cited and quoted and referenced as you pray. If you have no idea how to pray, open up the Psalms, take a Psalm, read over it, and then start praying over it. And then if you don't know what else to say, read the next Psalm and then pray over it. Very simple instructions that any of you I'm, I'm very confident can do. A great way to teach and train people to pray. This is what they're doing. And notice the way they're applying this Psalm, though, as they pray. Why do the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? Now, typically, remember when you think about Hebrew parallelism, it says Gentiles rage, and we know Gentiles are non-Jews. That's basically the definition of Gentiles. And then peoples is another word for, like, nations. And so you're thinking, okay, the Gentiles are the nations, and they're raging against God, and then the peoples is, like, further elaborating on it. But here, they talk about the Gentiles raging as being Pontius Pilate. You drop down in verse 27. For truly in this city there was gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, that's the Christ, the Messiah, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. Do you notice that here the peoples plotting in vain are not just the outside Gentiles, but it's actually the nation of Israel as well? And so they're applying that to their own people, and they're saying that Herod, who calls himself the king of the Jews, 
He's making plots and plans, and he's going to try and kill Jesus to make sure that he will not have any more threats to his kingdom. Herod does not want any more threats from Jesus, so he tries to kill Jesus as a baby. How did that work? Didn't work out so well. Jesus ended up with a bunch of gold and frankincense and myrrh. All right, then later on, Herod's son, he tries to kill Jesus, and he succeeds. How did that work at killing the kingdom of Jesus? It didn't. It didn't work. These people are plotting, but God is provening over all of human history and all decisions by all kings and rulers. And this is why it says in verse 28, they were doing whatever your hand and your plan predestined to take place. Take refuge in the Son, because he will not be brought down. He will always win. He will always succeed, no matter if it's Caesar Augustus, if it's Herod the Great, if it's Herod the Great Son, no matter who is plotting against him, they will be used in the hands of God for God to bring about victory for his kingdom. Have you ever thought about that before? God's sovereign rule over the nations and over your life and everyone's life. Death, where is your victory? He cannot be defeated. He defeated death. That means now nothing can stop you if you are in Christ, if you're underneath of that shelter of his refuge. He is your refuge, then nothing can stop you. How are you going to be happy if you know that ultimately death is going to rob everything that you've been working for your entire life? You're not. You'll just either push that aside and not think about that idea. That's what the world does. We'll numb ourselves to it. We'll busy ourselves. We'll distract ourselves. Let's not think about the idea that everything we're building in this world apart from God is vain and empty, and when we die, we lose all of it. Or you could be a happy person that isn't storing up things here on earth, but delights in God's ways because you know that you're storing up yourselves treasures in heaven, that when you follow Jesus, that none of your labor is in vain, and you can stare death in its face and say, death, where's your sting? Death, where's your victory? It will not win over me. For my kingdom is in heaven. My righteousness is in heaven. This is one of the reasons why you and I should not be anxious or worried about the nations or the future of the church. How many of us have heard ourselves think or others around us say, Oh man, where is America headed? Why be nervous about that? Why, why worry about the future of this nation? Be concerned? Sure. Pray earnestly? Yes, absolutely. Worry. Really concerned for the children and your grandchildren and the future. Man, I'd be a rich man if every time I heard that I got some sort of compensation. Well, I'm, I'm really concerned where we are now, but man, Phil, your children, the, the, the America they're going to grow up in, the nations are plotting and raging in vain. This nation, America, it's exactly what they're doing. But this is not our citizenship. This is not our long-term home. Therefore, we should not be anxious or worried about the nations. We should care for them, pray for them. We should be involved in the world in these different ways. But let them plot in vain. Let them fret and worry how they're going to try and lead to a happy life when you have it right in front of you in your lap, meditating on God's ways and seeing Christ as your refuge. Nothing can bring him down. 
Look at verses 7, 8, and 9 of Psalm 2. I will tell you of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. If you remember in our Matthew series, you are my son is the phrase that God speaks over Jesus when he is being anointed as the Christ through his baptism and the Spirit of God is anointing him. So you might remember from Matthew chapter 3 as we studied the baptism of Jesus, the heavens open up and God speaks these words from Psalm 2 and says, you, Jesus, you are my son. And then he is being anointed with the Spirit, showing that he is the Psalm 2 Messiah. David was a Messiah. He was an anointed one. He was anointed twice, actually. Solomon was a Messiah, little m, Messiah. But the things being spoken of here in Psalm 2, and as we'll see next week in Psalm 110, there's no way that David or Solomon or any of their children could ever be that Messiah. There needed to be one who was a king and priest forever, and their kingdoms lasted forever, and they never died. They'd be an eternal king with an eternal kingdom. Well, David's dead. Solomon's dead. Rehoboam and all kinds of kings after them, they're all dead. Jesus is alive. He's the one true son of David, son of Solomon. And this is why he says, I have set him on my holy hill. He is my king, and I'm speaking, you are my son. Today I've begotten you. And look at verse 8. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. This is obviously talking about the nations being underneath of the authority in poetic, poetic Hebrew poetry language. And so notice here, verse 8 says, ask of me though. It's very easy for us to pass over little details like that. Ask of me. Is God not promising in this text to make the anointed one the ruler over all the nations? Yes or no? Yes, he is. So he's telling the anointed, so now ask of me for the nations. You ever thought about this? God promises you something, okay, so then I don't need to ask for it. I'm just going to get it. Do you realize that this is like the basis of all of your praying? As C.S. Lewis says in the Chronicles of Narnia, Aslan just rather likes to be asked. So does the king of all creation, the God over heaven. He has already promised you all kinds of wondrous things but you still ask him. Say, for example, have you received forgiveness of sins? Past sins, present sins. How about tomorrow's sins? Are they already forgiven? Jesus paid it all on the cross? Yeah. It's a mind-blowing thought. Tomorrow's sins are already forgiven. Guess what? You should still ask for forgiveness tomorrow after you sin. Ask of me. Ask of me because it is through your prayers that God uses the means of the prayers for the thing to happen. In other words, we should not only just pray for general promises like forgiveness of sins, but you should pray for this promise. Has God not promised that one day Christ will return and rule over all the nations, that his gospel will spread to every tribe, tongue, language, and people? Has he promised that? Yes or no? Yes, he has. Are you praying for it? Ask me. I, I want to I answer that one. That's what he's saying. I want to say yes to that prayer. I've actually already promised it to you, but I would like through the means of your praying to grant you that promise. So our church, I hope, will be challenged and encouraged this week to pray over the Psalms. And when we get to Psalms like Psalm 2, 
Or read Psalm 96, the Lord being the ruler over all the nations, etc., etc. Pray, ask God. Give us China. Give us UAE in the Middle East, in Dubai, in Abu Dhabi. Give us the hardest places you could imagine where you don't think that those people would ever want to bow down to the knee of Jesus and pray, ask of me. He will give it to us. And finally, let's look at the last three verses, 10, 11, and 12. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son. That just means pay honor to him. It's like bowing down and kissing the feet, showing just complete humiliation before him. You deserve all honor and glory. So serve him with fear. Rejoice with trembling. These are concepts that don't normally fit into modern-day song lyrics, right? Happiness is serving the Lord with fear, right, ladies? Fear the Lord. Rejoice with trembling. Is fearing the Lord just constant fear where I'm only trembling all the time? No, but it includes trembling and joy. Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son. Pay honor to the Son. Lest, be warned, O rulers, be warned, O embassy church, lest he be angry with you and perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. So blessed are all embassy members, blessed is every individual here, blessed is every nation who makes Jesus Christ their refuge. There will be no refuge from his wrath. There will only be refuge in him from the wrath. The Son will rule and reign over all the nations. You will either be for Him or against Him. You cannot escape it unless you want to be in Him, underneath of that shelter. So be wise. This is a wisdom psalm. It's a royal psalm. It is a messianic psalm. It is a bunch of things all at once because it's introducing what you're about to read if you read through the Psalter. So where are you at? Are you for Him? Or against him? Does your life align itself in the ways of God? Or are you just sitting here right now? Yeah, I need to do that. Yeah, I probably should be praying more for the nations. I know we're commanded to. Yeah, I'll get around to that. That's that's not what's being described here. Delight yourself. Rejoice with trembling. Rejoice. There's a joy. There's a happiness. There's a blessedness. There is a life. There is a pasture land. And there is all kinds of sins that is holding you on back from the joy that is set before you. If you would just walk in his ways and delight in them. Or any of you, do you ever just hear God's laws and just know, man, that's just so good. That just leads to such life and blessing. I think a lot of us, we struggle with, no, I don't think God's laws are even that good. His sexual ethics, not good. His rules about this or that, and we think about it all as like just trying to tear us down. No, God's laws are for your good. They're not a burden that'll give you life. Blessed are those who take refuge in Christ and delight in his law. Let's pray together.
Father in heaven, we want to thank you for Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the Anointed One. We want to thank you that right now we have a refuge. We have streams of water. We have roots that can go down deep, and we have a shelter over our head that can protect us from the storm. God, we thank you for Jesus and his resurrection from the dead, which is often referred to in the New Testament by talking about Psalm 2 as Jesus reigning and ruling over the nations. They tried to defeat him, but they just ended up serving God's purposes to accomplish his victory and being coronated as king over all creation, as the risen Savior. So, God, we thank you. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you that we have hope in the midst of death. We have happiness that's available now, right this very moment. And that nothing can bring us down because nothing can bring Jesus down off of his throne. So, thank you for our union with Jesus and the promises that you've given us. So help us to serve you by praying boldly for these promises to come true in our lives. Build your church. Grow us into greater Christ-likeness. Sanctify us by your truth. Do the things that you've promised you said you would already do. Finish the good work that you've started, God. Complete the gospel to the nations. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.